You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 16 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 8th of July, 2015, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asher King. Hello, Webland. How was, uh, how was New York, Rue? Uh, it was good. I'm slowly falling in love with New York. It's a nice change from the jungle, but it is very nice to be back. It's nice to be podcasting again. Yes. I feel like we haven't, I haven't cast a pod with you guys for a long time. I've noticed you have an I Love New York coffee mug sitting next to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I do. You really do love New York. Yeah. Do you remember that episode of Friends where Joey took his friend around New York and did it, even though he lived there, he went and did all the touristy stuff and sort of rediscovered it and just came back wearing all of the gear. I, I kind of did that a little bit. <laughs> I love it. How, uh, how's your face doing, Ash? Ah, oh, it's a little healed up. Thank you for asking. It is. Um, you don't look quite so much like Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. It's, um, since the last episode, I've gotten my stitches out and I'm back in the water, but I still do look a little like Scarface. I think it's good. I think it suits you because you're quite clean cut. You're sort of, you're, you're, you're like an all American hero. You're a good looking guy, blonde side parting. I think you needed a bit of yeah, roughing I need, up. I need and a now you've got edge. like a little scar down your face and it's just like. A little edginess. Yeah, it gives you a little edginess. Yeah, not bad. I actually had an interesting experience this week on social media. The uh, LGBT act that got passed through in the States, of course, prompted Facebook to do their Celebrate Pride thing where everyone was doing their rainbow profile pictures. So I thought I would do it with the. Surf Simply profile picture. Seems like a nice gesture. Yeah, I thought so. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't usually want to get Surf Simply involved in anything political because, you know, most political subjects are so nuanced that trying to discuss them in a Facebook comment stream is just totally <laughs> counterproductive. You know, <laughs> you get gish galloped and then that's just the end of it. Yeah. But I thought, you know, the whole LGBT you know equal rights thing is just there's no there's not even a debate to have it's just it's it's, i can't even believe it's still being discussed there's nothing to discuss and it was great actually you know there was like we had a really high amount of likes and and really nice comments but it was funny as well with those few you know you're gonna burn in hell type comments that got posted there were some pretty aggressive ones yeah and it really caught me by surprise because you know everything we post on surf simply is usually just pretty positive non-controversial stuff about surfing and and, uh and i guess we sort of just dipped our toe briefly into the political waters of social media and it got a little murky and it got a little murky it was funny because i did it late at night and next morning i went into the office and ollie was like have you seen the certainly Facebook page so let me read you a couple of them you have just identified yourself as an organization which supports perversity goodbye I quite like that one goodbye uh, praying for you God help you uh, thanks very much for that one that was nice <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there was there was a couple of others that I have got language which are not podcast friendly um, the gates of hell will not prevail praying for you <laughs> What I do wonder is whether were those people that were actively following Surf Simply or were those people who were very, very anti-equal rights that then responded in that way? Or do you think that that was... I feel like post that ruling, there were a lot of people running around commenting on stuff for the yeah. sake of commenting on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that we tend to get very bigoted right-wing people coming and staying with us. I mean, that's not really our, the sort of people that come and stay. And, uh, you know, as I say, we had like, what, seven or 800 people who were in support of it and like one or two people that were very anti it, which probably is an accurate representation, or at least I hope an accurate, accurate representation of what's out there. 
but um, no, I, I think they were probably people just trolling around social media trying to, you know, like spread this. What's the opposite of spreading the love? Spreading the hate. Spreading the hate. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So that was a fun thing. The other thing I've been up to this week is uh, taking my nine-year-old niece, Isis, out surfing. She came down to stay. It was my first go at being a pseudo-parent and looking after a child. Oh, she's pretty epic. Yeah, she is pretty epic. We had so many fun days where we went out surfing. She's a bit like Lulu, who who makes the muffins at Surf Simply, where she enjoys surfing, but predominantly she likes to go out and socialize. So Isis would enjoy coming out and sitting on the front of a 10-2 and we'd catch waves together, but mostly she just liked having a good chat. But she got back home to my sister in Florida and uh, Lottie, my sister, said, you know, how was your time in Costa Rica? And the first thing that she was super excited about was, oh, well, I got to unpack surfboards with Harry. So <laughs> apparently Harry's 20 minutes of unpacking surfboards was more entertaining to her than my four days of surfing. <laughs> we did get to play with shrink wrap. That's true. Yeah, yeah you, did fun. Play, and you made a jetpack out of tubes. I mean, how can I possibly top that? Exactly. On to the news. Anything caught your eyes over the, the last couple of weeks, guys? I saw an article posted on uh, Tracks Mag in the last couple of days about Taj Bro sitting out the European leg this year. Yeah. Be, to be there for the birth of his child. Which is very nice. Yeah, but he is in the top 10 at the moment. Yeah, he is. And I'm a little sad not to be able to watch him in Hasegore this year. Yeah. We're all going to be around in France for uh, our yearly Surf Simply satellite trip. And he typically rents the house right across the street. And man, he's one of my favorite surfers to watch. Yeah, and it, we talk about Taj on the show before, but I, I always want to see Taj win every contest precisely because he seems so sort of casual about the whole thing. You know, he just seems yeah. like such a likable, likable kind of guy. And and it sort of makes me like him even more, the fact that he's in the running for a world title and he's just like, oh, I'm not going to go home and see the see the Grand Pop at, you know? Yeah, I like that. Sorry for my Australian accent to all our Australian listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if he's sitting top 10 now, like he could not show up for any of the rest of the year and still require yeah, the I guess he's he's fairly safe to do that. But. It, it was interesting. He was talking in an, in the article. I forget which one. And he was saying how he's never obviously he's never won a world title. And I think most people would agree he's one of the best surfers competitively to have never won a world title. And uh, and he said that he's just quite happy with it. And he does really have give that impression. He doesn't. You don't get the feeling like he's really hungry for that title. But nevertheless, I mean, finishing in the top 10 in the world is not something that just happens on its own. Yeah. And he does train super hard. Yeah, yeah I, just, I, I just think it's very cool. He's, sort of, he's obviously very happy with his life. And you sometimes get the impression that he is actually a lot happier with his career as a professional surfer than someone like Slater is. Yeah, you got to think Taj is going to go down as one of the most well-liked and most respected surfers of all times. Everybody loves Taj Burrow. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves Kelly Slater, but... Just from when you see Taj interviewed, you know, in, in documentaries and webcasts and whatnot, he always just seems a lot more content. And I think that he's a very interesting person to have balanced that level of contentment with also being able to consistently compete at an extremely high level. I mean, we talk about him not winning a world title, but basically every year for the last 10 or 15 years, he's had what for most surfers would be one of the best years of their life. So, I mean, he's... Don't make the mistake of thinking he isn't an incredible competitor just because he's not won a world title. But, you know, he's, he's managed to balance it. And I think that a lot of people could learn a lot. I, I think he'd, if you knew the right questions to ask him, I, I'm sure it would be really interesting actually trying to get inside his mind and see how, yeah. how he's put that together. Yeah, Maybe we'll definitely. get him on the podcast one day. Uh, speaking of missing a few events and uh, still requalifying, what do you think about Dane Reynolds being given so many wild cards 
over the last couple of events. He's back in J-Bear. Yeah, well, they, they, they did the same for Jay Davis, didn't they? Because he, mm-hmm. did, he did really well at Margaret River, and then they gave him the shout for Fiji. Fiji. Yeah, yeah. and for the listeners that may have not listened to the last podcast, uh, uh, the World Surf League is allowing all the competitors who are wild cards this year to keep all their points. So that could mean for someone like Dane, who's given the wild card into Snapper, uh, Fiji, J-Bay, and he's inevitably going to be in the running at France because Quicksilver is his main sponsor. Uh, he could requalify for the World Tour next year. Yeah. So there's some people that object to that concept, the idea that wild cards can be given the wild card by their sponsor into one event and then keep the points, mm-hmm. when there are other people who are trying to do the, the WQS, the World Qualifying Series, and trying to you know slog it out, doing mm-hmm. lots and lots of small events, which are really difficult to get a lot of points on and, and get enough to qualify, and they feel it's not fair. Uh, And I think that that's a legitimate criticism. The counterbalance argument to it, though, is that, I mean, if you're going out and surfing against the world's best and beating them, then you're beating them. Regardless of how you got there, you're demonstrating you're a better surfer than them. Not to mention that when you're a wild card, you have to go up against the top seed of the event in the first rounds. So you not only have to, you know, surf against the best surfers in the world, but you have to do it. The best surfer in the draw at any point. That's true, too. That's pretty impressive. I think the most important point is that the, the whole world title race is first and foremost entertainment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's more entertaining? Do you want to see a, a famous free surfer like Dane Reynolds or Jamie O'Brien go in? Or do, or do you want to see someone who you've never heard of, who may be just as good, but who you've never heard of, who's battled their way up through the QS, go out and surf those heats? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all, we all get excited to see the big names that we've heard of and seen over and over again surf those events. And, you know, that's what it's about. It's, yeah. it's entertainment. Yeah, I think it's an excellent move by the WSL. I mean, at the end of the day, they're just trying to increase viewers for their webcast, and they're definitely doing that yeah. by putting these top guys in the events. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what will be interesting, have we got the injury replacements yet? Because there's a lot of good guys out this time around. I want to say that Alejo Muniz got a wild card. Because the, the waiting period starts today, I think, doesn't it? For J-Bay, they've called a lay day for this first day. I believe today was the first lay day. But... Um, John John's out. Jeremy Flores is out. Yeah, Jeremy Flores had that really nasty injury to his face in Indo last week, didn't he? Yeah, Jeremy pulled an Asher and ripped his face in half. Yeah. Uh, I think his may have been a little worse. <laughs> I think his was a bit <laughs> I think his may have been a little worse. <laughs> uh, it looks like they got some really good waves at J-Bay over the last week if you've been following some of the pros' Instagram accounts. Yeah. And I'm really pleased in answer to your question that Dane Reynolds is in it. Because I don't know if you guys remember the first chapter, the first sort of big full-length movie that Dane released when, I guess mm-hmm. it was like 10 years ago now, was it? Or like, more? Oh, I played that video until no, I no, wore it, it out. It came out when I was still living in the UK. So that was two, that pre-2006. Oh, so yeah, I, I think that was before I was in high school. <laughs> so it must have been pre-2006. So I, in my mind, I still think of Dane as like the young up-and-coming superstar. And he's but, almost 30. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, in that movie, the first chapter, there's an incredible section which is all shot in a long right point break in South Africa that I'm pretty sure is J-Bay. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, he, and he, he's just fantastic in those right well, points. Well, I mean, he grew up surfing. Rincon, yeah, Rincon. So. So Ventura I, Point. I mean, he's amazing in a long right. I'd love to see uh, Curran and Dane Reynolds surf a heat against each other. Because yeah. Spe- physically, they're in similar condition. Speaking of Curran, he won a world title from just wild cards. Yeah. Uh, I think Kern's second world title was won on the back of just wild cards in an event, surfing through yeah. the trials. Yeah, well, that was in each so contest. Back, back then, the, the wild card was always awarded from the trials event. There was a trials for every single event on tour. 
And so he went through, had to win the trials to get the wild card and then win the event. And that was, was that his 1990 world title, I think? Yeah, that's pretty dominant. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. Um, on the subject, Jay Bay as well, actually. Um, Trace have signed Geordie Smith. Good move, time. Trace. Yeah, well, I think so. Uh, the Trace, for those of you that don't know, is the, the little GPS and accelerometer device that measures what the board's doing on the wave as you're surfing. Uh, and apparently he's going to have it on the board through the contest. Really? So Geordie's uh, quote about it was, uh, the technology and analytics of Trace are next level. It provides me with an accurate review of each surf session and the auto edit allows me to see where I'm going wrong and how I can perfect my surfing. In my opinion, this is the next step in surfing progression. That sounds pretty manufactured. <laughs> <laughs> I know, doesn't it? But you know what? I would really be interested to hear what Geordie, actually Geordie, not Geordie's PR guy, mm-hmm. actually thinks about Trace. You know, I'd really love to hear him talk about it because, you know, obviously you've, you and, well, actually both of you guys have used Trace a fair bit and you've been mm-hmm. communicating with a lot and helping them develop the software. And, uh, you know, I'd really like to hear Geordie saying things like, well, you know, when I'm doing a big roundhouse cutback, Trace is measuring those kind of direction changes, but on just a little off the lip speed check turns, it's not really picking those up. But that's okay because... I'm just not using it for that. I noticed that when I was doing a roundhouse cutback on this wave, I was getting, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. You know, on these waves, when I was using this board, I was only hitting 25. My top speed is this. I'd love to see what other surfers are hitting. I mean, I really would like to hear his opinion on it. But well, uh, I think the, the interesting thing right now is that Geordie Smith's opinion on it is probably less important than the fact that Geordie Smith is the sort of person that can go out and if they say, you know, okay, we need five controlled snaps to teach the, the algorithm what, a snap looks like from the data all right now we need five where we need you to release the fins geordie smith someone that can go out and do that like yeah. straight away same turn over point. and over and over again and if you're if you're trying to get an algorithm to look at it all this data coming in and trying to teach it all right that is a snap that's a rio that's a hack that's a cutback yeah you need someone of that caliber on, yeah, on the I think, team. yeah, I think we talked about this on the show before, didn't we? And uh, well, I really hope that Trace are going to be using Geordie in that way. Well, I, th- I think they are because they posted a couple of videos of him surfing, and on at least one of the videos that they posted, the stuff that they were overlaying on it isn't the standard information. They were obviously trying out some other stuff. I noticed on one, they're actually differentiating between the bottom turn and the top turn. Oh, that's big because that's something yeah. that when you were talking with them, they were struggling with. Well, just two other quick things that are happening. Uh, GoPro have just released a new camera, the GoPro 4 Session, it's called. Have you guys seen pictures of it? Yeah, White, tiny small. little cube. It looks very, very cool. It's very, very small, very small black, one button. Yeah, it looks very, the future is here now. Just if you're thinking about going out and getting one, I just did a little bit of research on it. I shoot with a 4 Black Edition, you know, which is the conventional one you guys have seen. And uh, and I use it a lot. We, we use it for shooting all of the guests at Surf Almost Simley. every day. Yeah, so I'm going out with it for two hours, uh, three or four times a week. And the two most useful functions of the 4 Black Edition are that it can shoot 1080 video. This is the one that's already out, that's been out for like six months or a year. It can shoot 1080 video at 120 frames per second. So that means that 120 frames per second means you can get that really nice, smooth slow-mo. Not the super slow-mo, that's the the 1,000 frames per second where you need like a $20,000 You can get it down to half speed. Yeah, and it looks really, really beautiful. The new GoPro 4 Session doesn't do that. It only shoots at 60 frames per second. 
at and even, even then, it's only if you turn it to 720, I think, isn't it? It shoots at 60 frames per second at 1080, and if at 720, it goes up to 100 frames per second. Right. So, I mean, it seems like for video, it's not going to be as good as the 4 Black Edition. And then for photos, it's a lower res as well, isn't it? It's 8 meg rather than 12. For photos, it's 8 meg rather than 12 meg. But more importantly, and this is just a good tip, actually, if you're going out and using a GoPro, the, uh, the way I use a GoPro mostly is I'm swimming out with fins and, then, uh, and I'm shooting other people surfing when I'm swimming around in the water. But the setting you want to have it on for that is taking 30 photos in three seconds mm -hmm. so that as the surfer approaches you, you press the button and then you can reach right out with the camera and it carries on taking photos as they go past. Uh, the new update on the GoPro 4 allows you to change it so you can take 30 photos in 6 seconds, which is awesome if you're surfing and you have the camera in your mouth and you want to get photos. Mm -hmm. So if you're surfing a short, hollow beach break and you want to get photos in the barrel, with the six, 30 photos in 6 seconds, you press it, start paddling, stand up, grab the camera out of your mouth, turn it around, and 6 seconds is long enough that you're going to get a really good photo. If you're surfing a longer, softer point break, you can stand up, press the button once you're already up, and then start taking photos, and you know, that's great. The new camera doesn't have that. It only has 12, 10 photos in two seconds. So mm. I guess the, the advantage of the new one seems to be its size. It's really small, um, and it looks cool, but I don't honestly see any technical advantage, and there does seem to be some major disadvantages. So if you're someone who's rushing out to go and buy the latest thing, like I sometimes have been accused of doing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, I would hold your horses with the GoPro. If if I've missed something there, that's 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 uh, some key point about it. Please let us know. Uh, as someone who uses a GoPro a lot, have you ever found that size has been a problem for you? No, honestly, I haven't really. In fact, I've lost the GoPro camera twice in big surf, and I have the little floaty on the back, yeah. and I've then like come into the beach and walked up and down the beach, and then I've seen that little floaty in the impact zone, and I've swum and got it. Mm -hmm. You know, and if that was a small black camera. My feeling is that actually that this session camera is not so much designed for the surfers as for people who are mounting it on helmets and on the fenders of cars and things like that where, where size is an issue, where, yeah. where you want nothing. You want the closest to zero profile as possible, and I can see mm -hmm. that. Also, the ISA, just other quick thing, are holding the first adaptive surfing uh, championships. Yeah, I saw that. That's going to happen in September. I thought that was a really cool... I think that's really cool too. Just for listeners, um, check out a guy called Mike Coots. He's just got one leg, surfer from, I think he's from Hawaii. He's got some amazing uh, GoPro videos on YouTube. Yeah, he really and does. If you're ever feeling sorry for yourself, watch his videos. Uh, and they're really, really inspirational. I mean, the guy surfs really good. Also, I was wondering whether Bethany Hamilton will be allowed to enter that. And if so, I would imagine she'll probably win because yeah, I mean, she's amazing. beating, she's beating uh, you know, I don't know what the right politically correct term is, able-bodied surfers. Yeah. But uh, that's yeah. one to look out for. Yeah, and good, I'm really good on the ISA for doing that. And also the CAF, which is the Challenge Athletes Foundation, who are giving 15 $1,000 grants to disabled surfers, to uh, adaptive surfers, I should say, to, to get to the contest. That's awesome. That's really cool. On to our main feature for this week then, which I am going to talk a little bit about the tides. So when you told me you were going to be doing a piece on tides, I was like, yeah. yeah. And then actually, you know, I was, I was looking through some of the notes that you sent me and, you know, I learned a lot. I think this is really interesting. Cool. So I wanted to start this piece by asking everybody a question. And that is, how much do you think about the tide when you're planning to go for a surf? How about you guys? 
Well, we're quite lucky here at Guiones because it sort of works all the way through the tides. You mm-hmm. know, at, at low tide, we have the faster, punchier waves. And at high tide, it's more sort of soft, slower waves. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's something that you definitely take into account at most surf spots. Yeah, any day off when I'm traveling to other spots in the area, it's pretty much the number one thing on my mind. Most of the time, even more than swell. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm going to make a lot of my decision as to what board I take out as to yeah. what, what the tide's doing and what the waves like to be. And I'm guessing that's probably the same for, for most of the people listening. So as surfers, we're probably more clued into the movements of the tides than almost any other group of people, because even the small changes in the tide can affect the way that the waves will break at any given spot. And the funny thing is that while we're pretty aware of the changes of the tides, the way that we talk about the tide is so basic that it, it quite often trips us up and causes problems. So what I wanted to suggest is a little idea for you all to try and maybe see how it affects your surfs over the coming months. Um, but before I get into that in too much detail, uh, I just wanted to recap on the basics of the tides uh, so that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet as we go forward. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. So. The tides are created by the gravitational effects of our orbit around the sun and the moon's orbit around the earth. As the earth then spins every 24 hours, the water in the oceans is pulled around a bit by the gravitational pulls and that creates the tides. I feel that in the name of just doing a little bit of uh, debunking of myths, Mm -hmm. it's worth pointing out at this point that the, the moon and the sun pull the bodies of water in the oceans around because the oceans are so big. Yes. It does not pull around the anything inside your body no uh when you're sitting at your desk there's more gravity acting on the inside of your body from your computer mouse than there is from the moon yes because of the size of you and your distance from the mouse yes and so if you ever hear anything about behavior or anything like that being affected by the the moon that is complete pseudoscience yes that not is the relevant thing. to really what you're talking about <laughs> but i just feel like it's interesting and I it's it, right it, in no it is interesting so Most places in the world, we're going to see two high tides each day and two low tides each day with around six hours of separation between each. But there are some places where they only get one cycle every 24 hours and there are a few really weird places where the tidal pattern is all over the place. That said, wherever you are, working out the times of high and low tide on any given day is actually pretty easy because it's basically linked into the orbit of the moon so once you get a feel for the flow of the tide at any given location you can then make very accurate predictions way out into the future kind of make sense yep yeah. um the next thing we've got to think about is as well as the time we've got to think about how much the tide goes up and down by which is a little bit more complicated because it depends on where the sun and the moon are relative to each other and to us so when all three of the bodies line up we get a full moon or a new moon and the range between high and low tide is very, very big. And we call that a spring tide or a king tide if you're in Australia. I've never heard that king tide. Yeah, that's, that's how they refer to it. Um, when the sun and the moon are at 90 degrees to the earth, from the earth you would see a half moon in the sky. And we get what are called neap tides where the range in height is much, much smaller. And that runs on about a four-week cycle of spring, neap, spring, neap, as the moon orbits the Earth each month. It then gets even more complicated because the Earth has an elliptical orbit around the sun, and how far away we are from the sun will make an effect on the tide. So that's why you see really, really big tides sometimes of the year and, and much smaller tides at other times of the year. The final piece in the puzzle is that as the Earth spins, all these massive movements of water, like we mentioned, we've got big, big, huge lumps of water, um, they're pulled into rotation around what are called uh, amphidromic points in the middle of the ocean. 
okay and that the further you are away from those sort of points uh, the bigger the range in height from high to low tide so that's why in the North Atlantic you get these huge tidal swings in Europe and, and over on the east coast of America uh, but in Hawaii there's barely a foot of difference one of the things that I thought was really interesting looking into this was uh, learning more about the um, I think amphidromic learning more about the amphidromic 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 that's fun to say yeah it's a good word and it's really interesting you know how in some parts of the world you have huge tides like in in europe and then in other parts like hawaii you have these tiny tides and yeah the uh i will post a photo of where all these amphidromic points are and the the variation in tide i will post that in the, on show, the, notes. In the show notes so okay, well, simply.com slash podcast l- well listeners definitely go and check that out because it's a really really cool illustration of where in the world has big tides and where has small tides and and that's just interesting to see from a sort of a traveling and a house building perspective if you (laughs) want to build anything on the waterfront but also it's cool because it gives you a sense of how the ocean is kind of like sloshing around in on itself you know it's something i hadn't really stopped to think about like you know where does all that water go when the tide goes out and how it's all spinning around in circles and sloshing together and how that affects other bits of coastline it's really amazing it's very cool isn't it um but so how does all that affect as a surface well like I mentioned before, different beaches and reefs work best at different states of the tide. And if you turn up at the wrong time of day, uh, it can leave you with a very disappointing set of conditions. And so this is why I want to try and change the way you all think about the tide. As most surfers, if you ask what's the best tide for spot X, they're going to reply with something simple like high tide, low tide, mid tide. But with all the variations that I just mentioned, those terms don't really cut it. So, for example, let's say you've got a reef and in order to break properly, it needs a certain amount of water over the top of it. And the general consensus is that that reef works best at low tide. Now, on some spring tides, the tide may go out so much that the reef is dangerously shallow. But on some neap tides, the water may not even go out enough to really create a wave. So, so, so in other words, you, we should be thinking about the, 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 the tide in terms of an absolute height rather than in high or low, because those are just relative to whatever else it is that day, which changes all the way through the month and the year. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much variation. So a lot of the time, those variations, you know, you turn up at the beach and it's kind of a bit funky, and we quite often put it down to the height and the direction of the swell or the wind, and and obviously those are going to play into account. But at the same time, if we were a little bit more accurate in the way we think about the tide, we might actually manage to score a little bit more often, or at the very least, avoid goose chasing after waves that never really seem to work. So for those of you that don't know my backstory, I've spent quite a bit of my adult life messing around in boats. I'm a yacht skipper as well as a powerboat and a sailing instructor. And in that world, getting variations in the height of the tide wrong can get pretty expensive. Have you ever crashed a boat as a result of miscalculating a tide? I have been reliably informed that there are two types of sailor. There are those that have run a boat aground, and there are liars. <laughs> <laughs> I've never run an expensive boat aground. <laughs> does saying crashed the boat just show how ignorant I am about sailing? No. no, you, no, no. You, can, you can crash a boat. You can crash a boat. Because, you know, usually sailors like to have special nautical terms for everything. We do. And we like to talk like pirates. All of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but so consequently, in the boating world, we've worked out some pretty good ways to at least guesstimate the actual height of the tide at any given moment in the day. So to start with, when you look at your tide table, um, as well as seeing the time of the high and the low tide, you'll also see the next column is the height of the tide. 
unless you're in France, because uh, in France they use a really weird system called the coefficient, which is kind of like a percentage reading for how high and low the tides could go under perfect conditions. So a, a spring tide would, you know, a spring high tide would be a hundred percent, and a spring low would be zero percent. Oh, so when you see in France, when you see a percentage, it's a percentage of how high the tide's going to be that day. Mm-hmm. Or is it a percentage of how high it could ever go? It's a percentage of how high it could ever go. So that's kind of more helpful in a way. Uh, from a yeah, from a real sort of layperson standpoint, it's it's easy to look at and just have an idea. But um, for doing anything more complicated, having the actual heights is is much easier. So let's stick to that for this. Um, the height of the tide is measured from an imaginary point called chart datum. Chart datum is then where all the depths and heights are taken from on a nautical chart. So if you look at the tide table and the chart, you can then use the numbers on the tide table to show how much water will be over like a group of rocks at high or at low tide or how far up and down the beach the water will come each day. So you end up with this number in feet, which is relative to chart datum. Yes. Right. So uh, and chart datum, am I right in thinking it's taken off a... It's taken off a point on the south coast of England somewhere, which they call zero, and then everything is taken from that. A little bit like Greenwich Mean Time is zero, and then all times sort of go plus or minus from that. Uh, sort of, yes. It depends whose charts you're using, because um, the Americans use chart datum is the average, is mean low water, average low water, so you get negative tides quite a lot. Um, in the UK, we have what's called chart datum Newlin, which is taken from Newlin Harbour in Cornwall, and all the uh, heights and are measured from the lowest astronomical tide possible at Newlin Harbour in Cornwall. Now, listeners, I can mm. tell you that Harry did not check any notes or his screen when he was answering. <laughs> that is just that's just the baseline level of knowledge that sits in Harry's brain. It's extraordinary. Um, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, so <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. So yeah, chart datum. Um, so we can measure, you know, using the, the tide data, using the high and the low tide, we, we know how far up the beach or how far down the beach or how much water there'll be over a reef at high and at low tide. But during the rest of the day, it's a little bit harder. Okay, but luckily the tide goes in and out by quite a predictable way. It's not just a constant flow. There is a variation in the flow, but it's, it's a predictable variation. Okay. I don't think people really think about it, but as much as they do at all, mm-hmm. I think that most people's perception is that it's high tide and then the tide goes out at the same speed until it gets to low tide and then it goes in at the same speed until it gets to high tide. Yep. But that's not how it works, is it? No, that's not how it works. So the tide comes in much more like if you, if you were to imagine if you drew like a bell curve on uh, a bit of paper or just drew a wave. Because that's all the tide really is, is a massive great big wave. So it would, uh, you know, it's sort of S-curve up to the top and then S-curve down to the bottom again. So it's more like maybe a, watching a pendulum swinging, where in the middle of the swing it's going quite fast. Mm, and then it reaches really. the end of the swing, it sort of goes really, really slow until it gradually slows and then starts to accelerate as it gets back towards the middle again. In terms of the speed, it, it explains it, yeah. Yeah, just in, I, just in terms of the speed and how it changes. So at mid-tide, the tide's moving really fast. And as you get closer to high and closer to low, it's actually moving slower and slower and slower until, of course, it mm-hmm. stops moving. Yeah. Um, so, like I say, there are a few variations. And, and if you needed a really accurate height of tide for navigating a super yacht, you'd probably not want to use this technique. But there's a system called the Rule of Twelfths, which is a really good way of just guesstimating how much water there is at any given time of the day. The rule of twelfths works like this. You take the difference in height between the high and the low tide 
and you divide that into 12 equal chunks. Okay, so let's say high tide was 8 foot above chart datum and low tide was 2 feet above chart datum. You take the 6 foot gap and you divide that into 12 equal chunks. Can you okay. do that quickly in your brain, anyone, using feet That'd and inches? Six inches. Six inches per chunk. Um, Didn't even check his screen listeners. There we go. So what we then do is we just assume that there's about a six-hour gap between high and low tide. Okay, now that's, that's not quite accurate, but it's close enough for what we're doing. Now for each hour of those six hours, the tide will move by a fixed amount. So starting at low tide, the first hour one-twelfth of the total would come in. So one of those six-inch chunks would come in. Okay, Into the second hour, you'd then see two-twelfths of the total moving. Okay, So one foot would, would come in. In the third hour, the tide's really starting to move now. There's a lot of movement of water, so we're going to see three-twelfths. Okay, The fourth hour, there's also three-twelfths. Then it starts to slow down as we get closer to high tide. The fifth hour, we see two twelfths, and then into the final hour before high tide, just one twelfth. So it's a way of putting an actual number value, a numerical value, on the fact that around high and low tide, the ocean's hardly moving at all, and at mid tide, it's moving really quickly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the tide would then go out under the same pattern, and straight away, you can then see a couple of things. Like you said, the two hours either side of high or low tide, just one twelfth of the total comes in, and goes out again. So you're hardly going to see any movement at all. You're barely going to notice the movement, even in a, a place like the UK where you have big tides. You're barely going to notice any movement in those two hours. But during the middle two hours, the height, you know, those middle two hours, half of the total, six twelfths, is going to just go in one direction. So that's going to be a really big, significant change in those two hours. So here's what you can do. If you go to the beach and the tide on that day seems to be making the conditions particularly good or particularly bad, take a note of what the time is. All right? And then when you go home, you can use the rule of twelfths to work out exactly what the tide was at that point, and then you can use that to plan your surfs in the future. So it means that you can go away from a beach going, oh, that was really good, but rather than saying, oh, so-and-so or this, this spot works at mid-tide, you'd be able to say this place works at seven feet. Exactly. With that much water on the sand or reef. Exactly. So, so let's do a couple of examples. Because last week, myself and Jesse uh, went to surf one of the local reefs around the corner. And we went out at high tide. And after about two hours, the tide started to get too low. And the rocks were starting to make these boils on the face of the wave. And it was getting a little bit sketchy. Now, high tide that day was 8.8 .8 feet above chart datum. And low tide was 1.2 feet. So the total tidal range was 7.6 now, if you break that down into twelfths, that would give us about seven and a half inches per twelfth. So using the rule of twelfths, we could then say that after two hours, three twelfths of the total, or just under two feet would have, of water, would have gone out, which would leave about seven feet of water on top of the reef. Mm -hmm. Okay. So rather than saying that the reef works on a high tide, I can say that the reef works whenever there's more than about seven foot of water which is important because on a big spring tide here, we get 11 feet above chart datum, whereas on a neap tide, we only get seven feet. Like there'd barely be any time to surf that reef on a neap tide. So on a, on a spring tide, you could go there pretty much a mid tide or anything above and you're going to start being able to surf it. Whereas mm -hmm. on a neap tide, you might just have, you know, an hour around high that you can surf it. Yeah, or even, you know, 30 minute window. Mm -hmm. um, as another example, uh, Asher, you, me and Ollie went up to Marbella the other day and yeah, pretty good surf. We had a pretty good surf, but when we got there, the beach was really rippy and weird, and 
we kind of got out pretty quick and went and had some breakfast. But by the time we'd finished breakfast, the waves were looking pretty sick. Oh yeah. So did you guys Very all? Good. Did you guys all just surf for a bit and then you all got out? Oh uh, yeah. Funny story about that. Uh, so the three of us, Harry, Ollie, and I, uh, we all it was really rippy out there and just not very much fun. And thought as the tide came in, it might get a little better. So us three got out, but our other friend Brad is a bit more stubborn than the three of us. <laughs> He's like, oh, no, there's good waves. Oh, we're going to stay. And so he surfed for about two hours while we were having breakfast and drinking too much coffee. <laughs> By the time that we were done with breakfast, the waves had just started you know, really pumping, like getting really good. But at that point, Brad was sunburnt, salty, couldn't paddle anymore, and he was getting out to do breakfast. So he kind of just totally missed the window of good surf. So he ended up just what did he, do? he ended up just eating breakfast by himself while we were getting tubed off of our heads <laughs> for two hours. And I've got this image of him sitting And then sat in the front seat of his car with the AC <laughs> on, just complaining. Ah, your kids should have surfed it earlier. <laughs> and he could have avoided that if he had used your rule of 12. Oh, well, rule of 12 was all but, I needed. So yeah, so when we got there, it was an hour after low tide. And low tide was 0.2 feet on that day. And high tide was 9.4 feet. So the total range was 9.2, uh, making each 12th around about 9 inches of water. Now, by the time we got back in the water, it had probably risen by about 2.5 feet. So if we were going to go up to Marbella any time in the next few days, we'd probably want to make sure that there was at least 2.5 feet of tide when we get there. Uh, which is fine because next week we're into neeps and even at full low tide, there's still 2.3 feet of water. So we can go up there any time. So when you're listening to some of those numbers, it can get you can get quite lost in the numbers quite yes. quickly. Are you going to post something in the show notes yeah. to help listeners like see that written down so they can calculate it? More Absolutely. Easily? So here's what I actually want you listeners to do. Um, when you go to the beach, uh, I want you to really, like I said, make a note of the time. And when you get home, do that quick calculation. I'll put some instructions into the show notes at surfsimply.com slash podcast. And then see if you can work out a little more accurately. You'll probably, you know, you'll need a few data points. So, you know, over the next few weeks and few months, see if you can work out when the tide's best at your local break. And that way, when the really good swell comes in, you're going to have that extra little bit of information to help you make the most of it. And one of the things that I thought was really cool, I just, I've been uh, beta testing the next version of the app for Trace. And they've linked it in with the uh, swell information, things like that from Surfline. And one of the things that they do is they tell you ex- what the height of the tide was while you were surfing. Ah, oh, that's useful. Very cool. Very they use, useful. And what system do they use? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they're getting their data straight from Surfline, so I don't... But they're, but they're giving you the height in feet. They give you the height in feet of the tide at the time when you were surfing. So if you use the rule of twelfths to, uh, to predict future tide heights just using a tide chart... Yep. That's going to sync perfectly with the information you're getting back from Trace. Yeah. Or, or, or as accurately as it matters. Yes. Yes, indeed. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So uh, with a bit of irony, today's superhero of surf is a man who actually really never surfed in the conventional sense at all, but whose design concepts have unintentionally been influencing boards for about you know 50 years or so and doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime in the near future. No. And uh, yeah, I'm talking about none other than the San Diego kneeboard extraordinaire, Mr. Steve Liss. 
Yeah. So for those of you guys that don't know, he's basically the guy that created that classic traditional fish design, you know, with the the, yep. t- the deep swallow tail, quite quite straight rails, very full nose, and then a really deep swallow tail. Yeah, in, when, in the and when end. you look at pictures of, of the list fishes from the 60s and 70s to the ones now, they pretty much haven't changed at all. No. Give you a little bit of list history. All right. Listery. Li- <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, thank good. you. I like that. <laughs> Steve Liss was born in 1951, raised around San Diego, and began uh, surfing or kneeboarding at 10 years old in uh, Ocean Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and he really focused only on that kneeboarding approach to wave riding. The reefs and waves around San Diego are you know, arguably some of the best waves on the West Coast, and during that time in the 60s and 70s, it was definitely the most fiercely localized waves in the world. And he pretty much rose to underground hero status. Uh, with his radically progressive style of wave riding. He was riding faster than anyone else. Uh, he was really deep tube rider, and he's one of the pioneers of really vertical lip surfing. Yeah. I grew up surfing with a guy called uh, Richard Smith, who's quite a famous UK kneeboarder. Mm-hmm. And uh, right from when I first got into surfing, he was always around, and he was uh, just would, would get barreled more than anyone. He would just surf yeah. on the big days, going for the biggest turns. And while kneeboarding isn't something that we sort of look at very often and go wow that's cool i want to do that and yeah it's contributed so much to surfing and because you're so low down you you can create these really tight turns and fit in tubes that mm-hmm. the stand-up guys kind of struggle with it's very cool i think the cool thing about kneeboarding is that is like you said just because that center of gravity is so low a lot of people when they're surfing are very tentative about going in for for really putting the board on rail because as you know as you lean the board over if you're stood tall Mm -hmm. you can become unbalanced very easily whereas because the knee borders are so low like they just throw the board around so hard a lot of the times that you know they really show what's possible yeah before the surfers figure out really catch it from a stood up perspective you know that the whether it was barrel riding or whether it's vertical top to bottom surfing like because they've got that low center of gravity they work it out first yeah and then it takes surfers a few years to catch up with what they've been doing yeah well uh, yeah yeah even in terms of you know the kneeboarders cut off a lot of the length of their board way before the the surfers were trying you know, george greeno took a whole load of length off his kneeboards yeah and steve's uh his contribution was kind of that deep swallowtail fish design yeah so in a in a 2000 interview with gary taylor he said that so he really like to ride pintails, but when you're kneeboarding, you're using those swim fins to kick into waves. Yeah. But they actually hung over the side of the board and created a lot of drag. Uh, so he designed the split tail to kind of mimic the pintail and have two on each side, uh, but still have the width to support the fins. And at the same time, kind of preserve those characteristics that he really liked. Oh, that never occurred to, to me. Yeah. yeah. That, it never occurred to me that that would have been the, the root of where that wide swallowtail came from. Yeah, yeah and they say they actually... Uh, he actually laid on the board with swim fins and had them outline where he, they thought they would lie while he was on the wave to cover him up so there wasn't any drag. No way. Yeah. But yeah, his uh, his designs caught up a lot with stand-up surfers over the next couple of years. Uh, Mike Tabling from Florida started riding the wide-tail fishes a lot. David Nueva, that's kind of his transition from longboards to shortboards, was on yep. those wide uh, fish kind of surfboards and then uh, eventually way- made its way to Australia and had a pretty big influence on a certain gentleman named Mark Richards, yeah. who ended up winning four world titles on a on a fish, somewhat similar design. So I think the uh, the really interesting thing with the the fish as well is that it it wasn't an intentional thing. You know, they they, mm-hmm. they went wide to support the fins and put those two 
that put those two pins on the back end. But what they ended up with was that huge surface area. Yeah. Forwards of the swallowtail. So those boards were so quick. Yeah. Which, which really, you know, the pintail is designed to control speed and, and almost slow you down. Um, and, and so it's an interesting side effect that, that what he wanted was the grip of the pintail. Mm-hmm. But he ended up getting a lot, a getting lot of a extra lot more speed, speed, which then meant he was getting these incredible tube rides. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, actually, when you look at design in all areas, you've got kind of these two approaches to design. One which is uh, intention and then explicit design in order to fulfill whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then you have a kind of a trial and error approach. And, and actually, the trial and error approach, as long as the cost of error isn't too high, is a really, really effective and powerful way of coming up with good design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this case, it, it was a very intentional design idea. The whole thing was designed out, but there was then the unintended consequence yeah. of creating a board that went like a rocket. Yeah, he happened to be going fast as lightning. Yeah. And he's still shaping today, I think, Steve Liss, isn't he? Yeah, um, he had a bunch of knee joint damage, sadly, so he can't kneeboard anymore. But he's still stand-up paddle surfing and shaping boards on, I think, Kauai to this day. Still shaping some really beautiful fishes. So uh, next time you're talking to your friends about the evolution of the swallowtail, don't forget to mention Steve Liss. Steve Liss. There we go. Steve Liss. Final thing for this week is our regular what to watch section. And uh, my big hit for this is going to be Reef's new feature-length movie. I haven't seen that yet. I'm Have really excited to see it. Exit. 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 I, and this is kind of weird, they've gone down a slightly, like, Kai Neville cluster, like, lo-fi direction. Oh, you don't like that, do you, Which Harry? I don't normally like, but they've skirted the border. They haven't gone that far into the woods. They've just skirted in the undergrowth. <laughs> and I actually, I actually quite like it. And they haven't gone down the weird music route as well. So it's actually, you can listen to it. See, I like the nice. weird music route. Yeah, I'm kind of with Ash there. I like the weird music too. Yeah, I, I don't, don't just dip your toes in the water. You either go all or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, there is some, there's some really, really good surfing in I mean, that they Reef have actually quietly acquired really a strong team. surf team. They've got Shane Dorian, Rob Machado, Mick Fanning. Young uh, guys like, uh, Mitch Cruz, Luke, Luke Davis, Davis. Uh, Instagram got, heroes, and then they've got Tia Blanco as well. Yeah, they, they've they've put together a hell of a team. And of course, Scott Heck, Reef CFO, has come to stay with us yeah. and is a thoroughly awesome guy. Actually, just about Scott Heck. One thing when he came to stay last time, and I posted a, I posted it on Twitter, and I was like, you know, good to see Reef's CFO working so hard in the water. And a, and a couple of the Reef team surfers, I think Tia Blanco and a couple of others sort of uh, gave him the thumbs up on uh, Twitter, which I Very thought was nice. just really cool, you know. Yeah. I like that the team riders are giving the chief financial officer uh, the props for getting in the water. <laughs> Let's be honest. He signs the paycheck. Yeah, well, that's true. You're going to give him the thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> um, did anything catch you guys' eyes? Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the footage of North Point, which has got to be coming out pretty soon because they got that huge swell hit there last yeah, week. Yeah, did you see any of the stuff that that big wave session they had at oh. the, uh, that offshore, I think they call it Cowbommy. Cowbommy is that the most Australian? Yeah, name that for is a the most Aussie name ever. <laughs> and Cow unfortunately, Bombie. and unfortunately, Justin Holland broke his leg out there riding what uh, a couple of people have described as the biggest wave ever surfed in Australia. 
So there's a photo of it you can see on uh, on Grind TV. Actually, you can you can check that out. We'll put a link to it on the show notes. But uh, yeah, but he broke his leg, and then they hit, it's five kilometers offshore. So they had to bring him back in on a jet ski, which must Ooh, have been really rough, really painful. And then a six, sixty kilometer drive from uh, Gracetown uh, all the way to the hospital. I mean, that must have been really really rough. And but apparently, you know, true true blue Aussie, he's in good spirits. Just like, oh, it's all right, mate. Can't walk for six weeks, can't surf for nine weeks, I'll be back into it again. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I wish him a speedy recovery. And uh, But I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the footage of North Point because I know that Taj went out early in the morning and was towing in out there in a jet ski. Whew. And I think North Point, which you guys may remember, they, they got some amazing waves there during, during the Margaret the River Margaret Pro River. Mm-hmm. back in whenever it was, March or February or March this year, March or April. And uh, and it's just such a fantastic wave. I think it's one of the best waves in the world. So if they got that really as big as it gets uh, and Taj was out there surfing it, that's something that I really, really want to see. Yeah, that big swell uh, rolled through Indonesia as well. There's been some amazing footage coming from... No put, Kandui's. Well, the Kandui Resort put up a, a whole thing from around there. Uh, Macaroni's Resort put an edit up of Greenbush just going off. Yeah. Um, and there was some really good stuff, actually. Huge Uluwatu. Um, we'll post all of these in... Uh, there'll be links to all of this in the show notes. Um, Uluwatu, actually, which, for listeners who don't know, is, is the most surfed wave in Indonesia. It was it was the iconic wave in Morning of the Earth where they mm-hmm. walk out through the cave. And that was sort of the, the wave that put Bali on the map as a primo surf location. And now if you go to Bali and you paddle out Uluwatu, there's just going to be hundreds and hundreds of people out there even as the sun rises you can usually surf it you know around the kind of shoulder head high but people often forget it can hold massive massive waves led hamilton said that one of the scariest experiences he's ever had surfing was caught inside at Uluwatu. yeah and especially because it just washes right through and there's no beach in there it can it comes right through and just hits the cliff at high tide um so you've just got this little hole in the cliff that you have to yes. try and swim through. And if, and if you miss it, the rip whips you down the coast and you have to swim all the way back round, which has happened to me a couple of times. Yeah, I've done that. I've done that swim around a few times. Yeah. <laughs> just as a little inset, that big session they had out at Cowbommy, there was uh, Felicity Palmiter. Also got an absolutely huge wave, one of the first women to surf out there. And we'll, we'll put a link to that. I would love to see a surf movie exclusively about some of the women who are charging big waves now that would be pretty interesting because you tend not to hear about them you know they're not in the world tour and they're not on the circuit and then you just suddenly see these these films or stories about big swells that have hit hawaii or australia where have you been hiding yeah and they suddenly just drop in the name of oh and there was this woman out there catching waves as well and uh yeah i mean i I think it'd be great to see a filmmaker really put some of their stories together yeah i agree Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's about all for this week. Other than to say, of course, keep an eye on J-Bay. It's, it's probably my favorite or one of my favorite events on tour. It's just one it's of It's a fun one to watch. So enjoy that, ladies and gentlemen. But for now, it's goodbye from me. And bye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Take care. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.